Hello and welcome to the show. I hope you're well. My guest this week is Mike Edwards from Jesus Jones. Jesus Jones were one of the leading acts from the alternative dance scene in the early 90s, along with bands like Pop Will Eat Itself, The Shaman and Utah Saints. I loved them back then and I still love listening to their records now. On the show we discuss, amongst other things, the early days of the group, what it was like playing Top of the Pops, and what Mike thought about the whole Britpop scene. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Music or via Spotify, and also give my Twitter page follow. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Chris Ibbert for supplying the music for the show. So without further ado, here he is, Mike Edwards from Jesus Jones. So um, I'm delighted to be joined by Mike on the podcast today, so thanks for taking some time out. A pleasure. Yeah, I'd like to sort of start off with, which I have with some of my other guests. How did you find those lockdowns that we had a few years ago? Were you about to tour? Was Jesus Jones about to head of the road? Yeah, I think we had a gig uh, coming up about two weeks after lockdown was announced, maybe even less time. In fact, um, it was a it was a show that um, it was a kind of festival on a on a boat going across to Holland and back, and right up until almost the last minute, um, the organisers were kind of hedging their bets. And I think we were one of the first bands to say, actually, this looks a bit silly. We're not going to do it. And pretty much as soon as we did that, I don't think we caused it. But I think everybody else said, yeah, actually, this is not a good idea. And the whole thing got called off. But yeah, and that was um, that was the first of the shows that got cancelled. We we kind of have uh, shows lined up in dribs and drabs. Um, And so obviously that was March 2020. um, But we are still kind of fulfilling our um, contractual obligations to some of those gigs now, I think. I think the last of them that we were meant to do in 2020, we do in September this year. So two and a half years later. I know. That's what people don't realise, the whole knock-on effect, isn't there? That's why a lot of bands have struggled to get onto festival bills because they have to, you know, accommodate bands that were on before. So it means bands have to wait another... Yeah, you forget the whole knock-on effect, which with every industry it's had, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we're finding, which is pretty dull because it's behind the scenes, is getting hold of road crew. Um, Everybody's working absolutely flat out and is booked up for months in advance, hiring a van, you know, (laughs) just to get all our gear and drive in the country. That's proving really, really tricky now. Just in all sorts of ways, we are kind of, um, we're going into a new era in all aspects of our life. Um, you know, it, it's kind of Brexit, supply chain stuff, Ukraine now. Um, you know, I think uh, it, it does make you seem, makes you feel a little bit as though we've, we've, we're coming out of the golden age. This is the steep drop off of a golden age in, in so many ways. You know, um, it's not um, thought of that uh, my son might get called up to fight in a war now. Uh, which my dad and I didn't have to do. And that's just one extreme <laughs> example, yeah. obviously. But, you know, in all sorts oh. of ways, we do seem to be, it, uh, the, the nature of our lives is changing, I think. Um, to be going like a time machine and go back, because I'm always, I know it's, it's, it's an old question about your first sort of music loves, but I've always find it fascinating to see when someone was first sort of aware of music and when they first got into music. And I wonder what age, you were and what was the kind of things you were listening to i was nine um it's very easy to for, for me to remember um actually <clears throat> probably a little bit before i was nine um <clears throat> my parents who um who uh, chastise each other these days for for being reckless and irresponsible but you know i don't think of them in th- that way at all 
they would want to go out uh, and see friends and not take the kids with them. So they'd leave my brother and I at home. At um, you know, we were but we were still no seven, eight, nine, and what four, five, six, seven, something like that. Yeah. And basically, kind of their their Beatles records um, would be our babysitter. You know, they just put an album on, so there was some noise coming out, and then uh, I knew how to take the LP off and turn it over. Uh, and that that was a babysitter, but it really kind of um, yeah. it, 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 so that was a couple of years before I was nine, but it solidified when I was nine because my parents did this wacky kind of round the world post hippie trip, um, whereby the people we were living next door to were South Africans, and they um, the uh, the husband had been in the UK studying uh, medicine, um, and it was time for them to go home, and they kind of one drunken night said, "Wouldn't it be a good laugh to drive?" all of that from London to South Africa. So um, the next morning, they, instead of saying that was really embarrassing, we shouldn't drink as much, they actually said, wow, we better do this. <laughs> so we, we kind of did this, it started out that way, going, going down through Africa, but ended up coming back through um, uh, Asia and Europe. And all the way on that journey, um, my parents had um, a cassette player in the, uh, in the Land Rover. And they would play their, their record collection. So loads of stuff from the 60s. So there would be Beatles, Stones, uh, Janis Joplin, Simon and Garfunkel, um, stuff of that, that kind of build. And that was, that was played kind of, you know, pretty much nonstop. And I distinctly remember thinking, yeah, that's a really great bit of guitar. I want to do that bit. And that's a great bit of singing. I really want to be, be the person in the band who sings stuff yeah. like that. And I kind of had that idea um and then when, once we were back in the uk i started messing around on my dad's guitar much to his dislike and i was told if i was going to play i should go out and buy my own so i kind of saved up bought my own and i said i think about two years later did my first gig with jen the uh, the drummer in jesus Jones, and um and suddenly it's 2022 how did that happen and what what was the name of the band then was it this so this is obviously Way before Jesus Jones, what would yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that, yeah, that, yeah, that incarnation that was Marshall Howe, I believe, which is named after um, a grave digger from Derbyshire in the uh, in, the, in the, the plague. That's a cool name, I like that. Yeah, it was, was quite heavy metal, we liked it too. It was quite yeah. heavy metal, and it does sound uh, heavy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you did lots of gigs where you, where you live locally. No, we, we did very, very few, you know, um, gigs were very, very hard to get up until um, immediately before we had a record deal. It was a kind of defining characteristic of being in a band in those days and probably probably still is. Yeah. That, you know, at whatever stage you were in your career before signing a deal, getting a gig involved, pestering people constantly, um, uh, networking frantically. Uh, and doing doing whatever you could, and most of the time in the early days, you just played to the same bunch of friends, um, which is kind of tough. When Jen and I moved from uh, the West Country, where we spent our teenage years, so we moved up to London, we knew no one, so uh, we were in a three piece at the time, and often the band would outnumber the audience. So yeah, <laughs> that was that was pretty. <laughs> Imagine that. When was the actual formation of Jesus Jones? What what was when when did all that happen, and how? It was a kind of rolling start. Um, uh, Jen and Alan, the bass player, and I were all already in a band. Um, and then I decided, you know, we had other members come and go. Uh, then I thought we, we wanted a second guitarist. So we, um, we, we put an advert in the, the NME uh, for a guitarist, and we had two people respond to the 
invitation and Jerry was one of them and he wasn't as bad as the other guy. So we, we kept him. Yeah. And uh, that would be kind of 86, I guess, something like that. Um, and we were sort of writing and gigging wherever we could. And then I uh, was, I'd been into skateboarding since the seventies, but I, I got really back into it again in the, uh, in the mid to late eighties uh, in London. And um, I was at a pub uh, outside London one, one weekend and there was a guy wearing a pair of vision um, uh, streetwear shoes, which only skaters wore in those days. This, is, this would be about 87, 88 maybe. And um, so we got chatting and, you know, I said I, I was in a band and I played in the cassette and he really liked the, uh, the demo tape we had at the time. We were working on a three song demo, one of the songs of which was Info Frico. And then after a while, it seemed like we did need someone to play to trigger a keyboard, trigger all the samples via a keyboard. And it didn't seem to require any actual musical skill. So I asked my skateboarding friend, Ian, if he wanted to do it. And he said, yeah. And I guess really at that point, immediately before we got signed in December 1988, that's when the lineup was crystallized. Um, But it had been kind of rolling into that already. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, with the exception of Alan moving to Chicago, although I think we're still doing a gig with him in Canada in May, the lineup has remained the same. We now have two bass players. We basically have a kind of uh, uh, a UK bass player, Gary, uh, and then we have Alan, who cherry picks all the fancy gigs. Yeah, I think I remember seeing you on your website ages ago. It's something like we we never split up or something, because I think that's probably what, you know, a lot of these um, our bands will go, oh, they just assumed you've reformed over the years, but I knew you never had split up. I've never actually see you stop or you know yeah i mean you know there were there was a jen did leave for a period he had um we were we were spending forever recording um already and i think you know how ringo Starr quit the beatles and this is a great comparison for me to make but ringo Starr quit the beatles because he got fed up of just sitting around watching the rest of them do stuff all day yeah, and that was great. exactly the scenario <laughs> recording already it took I think the first first version took about six months to record, and the second version of the same album took about nine months to record. So, you know, like when when all the drums have been done and there's nothing else for you to do, it's a really tedious process. So he he kind of he went off and played with a, another band for a while, really good band, um, and then came back. I don't know some some while ago, but yeah. And the thing with us is that um, after we lost our record deal in '96, we kind of struggled on a bit and. Um, uh, you know, we'd have an agent get us a gig and, you know, it's to a large extent, I was the manager, which I was useless at, you know, I didn't, I didn't really want to be the manager. I just wanted to keep things going. Uh, and it got to the point where we just do some gigs. Um, if one got offered, if, if we heard about one, but I don't think anyone really knew we were still out there yeah. um, because we didn't really have the, uh, the method to advertise that fact um so we had a long period in the kind of like 2000s early 2000s um into the teens where um, we we just didn't do very much apart from the odd gig now and again but i think now that ian has got more into managing the band and kind of knows that side of things much better it, it has meant that um yeah, we're we're a lot more active a lot more visible now you know and that's when we're not having a, a, a pandemic exactly and I, and I take it a lot easier now. We have the internet and things like Twitter and Facebook, which wouldn't have been around in, in the, you know, the mid-90s. Yeah, yeah, th- yeah that, that is very true. But, um, you know, you've got, to, you've got to shout pretty hard to be heard above the noise. But, yes, I mean, anyone who's sitting there having a glass of wine and listening back to uh, old tunes who suddenly thinks, I wonder where they are now, can find out in about 20 seconds, which obviously yeah. you know, wasn't the case previously. 
Because think about Twitter then, because you did one of the Tim's listen, listening parties. Um, was it last year, I think? I remember seeing that on there. Um, yeah, I think Ian did that, but yes, you're right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, I mean that's, that must have been a good experience. So, so Ian did that one, because obviously um, they're, they're really good, aren't they, in the way of, of engaging with fans and sharing memories and stories. Um, so did you, did you see it at all? Did you manage to sort of listen? No, to I didn't, no. Um, I it looked didn't, good. Didn't, and it didn't 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 see it. I'm, not, I'm not really aware of it I mean to be honest I kind of I live my hermit life and I don't <laughs> yeah get out much I just you know kind of look after the family a bit and and, and then do the odd gig so that yeah. that's kind of what I do I don't really pay that much attention to stuff you know music I listen to but I but not in not in the way that I did before in that I kind of don't buy albums listen to bands go out and see bands yeah. you know I just kind of listen to new releases that catch my ear and I find it quite difficult because I can never remember any details about the stuff I like, apart from the sound of it. I never remember who it's by, never remember what the, what the title of the track is. Anyway, so that's a very long-winded answer to your No, question. no, no, it's a great answer. Yeah, so there's nothing that springs to mind of new bands that you listen to at the moment that, that you could recommend, or is it, like you said, it's uh, hearing new stuff? Yeah, yeah, no, I probably can. I mean, there's, there's, there's an artist in, uh, in the US that I absolutely love, a guy who used to go by the name of um, Corporate, but now goes by the name of Pedestrian, pedestrian Tactics. Um, very kind of, you know, electronic music. Absolutely. I think it's stunning. He just has a style that I, I love. Oh, um, there's a band, oh, King Buffalo. Yeah, King Buffalo. I think I think they are brilliant, really good. That's a good name. Kind of like a, a cross between Krautrock and Black Sabbath, which is a pretty good cross, I reckon. It's a Buffalo um, thing. <laughs> I love those yeah, things. Yeah. <laughs> I need to check these both. things out. You've already uh, helped me out with a couple of recommendations, which after our interview, I'll go and definitely check them out. Okay. Yeah. So if we jump in the DeLorean and go back in time, if we go back to the first, make it of the first album with the top of my head, Liquidizer. Yep. How all that came about. Like you said before, the sound of Ian mixing all the beats together with the guitars. I mean, you can see you doing that in the late. I mean, that thing must have been quite, quite a new thing at the time, wouldn't it? That sort of sound. Cross between dance and guitars was never really done then. All new no, no, not really. Um... Uh, th there were a few people beforehand. There was the Age of Chance uh, from Leeds and about 86. And I think the KLF in their very, yeah. very early days were doing you know, quite similar stuff. Yeah. Um, there was Populate itself as well, who were, who were before us. Um, I, I don't know why I was, I was never really kind of that aware of them, but they, they were certainly there. Um, yeah. But the band for me that were the real inspiration were The Shaman, um, with their, their album in, in Gorbachev We Trust, that the way that they kind of blended the technology of dance music, um, not necessarily the, um, uh, the beats themselves, but, but that technology of, of dance music with rock music, I thought, wow, this is great. This is the way forward. And um, in in a way that I think normally makes for for pretty decent music, I tried to emulate them and got it really badly wrong, which is the best way of doing things, I think. Yeah, just give it a go and try it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not so much give it a go, but just, um, you know, I thought they did it a certain way. Yeah. And so I went about it that way. Yeah. And when I met them later, they said, oh, God, no, it's a lot easier than that. Yeah. So around the first album, I mean, it, it got good reviews. I mean, I remember reading that it, did, did it do, was it around number 32 in the album charts? I think I remember. Yeah, yeah. It. So mm -hmm. it did okay, didn't it? But it was the second album, was it Doubt, where it really things, do you think, yeah. lifted off for you? 
And yeah, the, the, the first album was, I mean, that, that was the, the, the cult hit, if you like, you know, Info Freak, I mean, the, the, the cult hit song, it kind of made John Peel's festive top 50 of that year. And it was, you know, the kind of the, um, at the end of 89, we were kind of best new band or, you know, featuring in, in the lists of best new bands. Um, but we hadn't had any real hits. We kept getting to the devil's own chart position of number 41 with our singles, which meant that, you know, we, we were just outside being playlisted on Radio One. Um, but then when we started having hits, which was, um, like with the, it started with Real, Real, Real in, I guess, summer 1990, something like that. Um, yeah, and, and those those singles right here, right, uh, right now, Real, Real, International Bike, thing, they were all off Doubt. So that kind of propelled Doubt uh, in, into to being the hit in the UK, at least. And obviously in America, it was right here, right now that, that kind of did the job there. Yeah, I mean, as, as an album, because I know when you re re revisit certain albums by some bands, uh, they can unfortunately not sound uh, as, I wouldn't say dated, but what I think with your albums, they still sound great, the production on them. I mean, um, that, uh, that's very kind of you. Um, I, I disagree uh, strongly. Really? Um, oh, right. Well, uh, that's yeah. the guy who made them, maybe. Uh, you have a different <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I was. I think Craig Leon, who produced Liquidizer, did a great job on it. Um, but he was in a really difficult situation because I, I kind of wanted everything at the same time, which you can't have, of course. And, you know, a producer understands that, but an artist doesn't. So it, it never kind of um, it never quite got what I was trying to do. This this often happens, I think, you know, like when whenever you make an album, there's the artist view is not necessarily the the uh, representative of, of what comes out at the end. Um, so Craig did a really good job on liquidizing the best he could have done in the circumstances, but it it wasn't really what I was hoping for. And doubt, because I did so much of it without any of the necessary skills, um, much of doubt, I think is a, it sounds appalling to me. Um, I was never really keen on the remixes of International Bright Anything and Real, 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 although in retrospect, I think they were much better pop songs than the versions that I would have done. Um, okay, yeah. But, you know, I, I never really got happy with any of our albums till the third one, Perverse. Um, we, and that album I can listen back to. And, yeah, you know, it does sound dated. Um, of course, it's we were always meant to sound very much of the time. And I knew at the time doing that meant that we would sync with that, that, that particular ship, which is fine. You know, I, I kind of didn't think I'd be here in 2022 talking about them. Um, yeah, exactly, yeah. But uh, yeah, so, so it took three albums before we made something I was really proud of. You're proud of, yeah. So with the success of uh, the second album too, you obviously played Top of the Pops. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, what was that like the first time you, you played Top of the Pops? Because obviously not a thing now, but for us as music fans, it was a show you watched. And I bet for you as well, it was must have been a real Oh thing. yeah, absolutely. You know, I, did, I, I must have watched Top of the Pops for the first time in maybe even the 1960s um you know when I, I was I, mean, I turned six in 1970 um so yeah it was immense it was absolutely huge um you there were some surprises you know it's very very small studios and very very few people in the audience and they always made it seem far bigger than it was but it didn't really matter because it was the occasion it was the event it's like I can't believe I've made it to this mecca of British pop music, you know, it, it was such a big thing. And we'd been, you know, dreaming of it, all of us, for 
you know, even at that point, well over a decade, well over a decade. So yeah, it was it was hugely exciting, massively exciting, and a, a, a big deal for us. Can you imagine who you're on with the first time you, you did it? Because it must have been some real um, crossover. I have no. a feeling, but I can't remember. I have a <laughs> feeling that the Happy Mondays and oh, maybe yes. the Stone Roses. Yeah. May, I, I think so. Can't and the reason I'm not sure is that you were basically told to kind of, you stay in your dressing room so we know where you are. And when it's your turn, you come out and you do your bit and then you go. So it's not like all the bands sit around chatting or anything and you're not hanging out in each other's dressing rooms. You're just in your dressing room and then you get wheeled out to do your bit and then you're off. So I remember once meeting Phil Collins walking around um, uh, uh, near the canteen. Um, That was one of the dates. And... uh, (laughs) Oh. <laughs> Jerry in the band, the band's guitarist, is the biggest Paul McCartney in the world. But, sorry, biggest Paul McCartney fan yeah. in the world. And um, he, uh, Paul McCartney was doing a Top of the Pops with us on one occasion. And he stuck his head around the door just to wave hello to us uh, uh, within the two minutes when Jerry had popped out to the toilet. So, uh, you know, we were obviously still ribbing about that. But yeah, you, you don't really... I, I never, well, for a start, I, I don't remember much about those days anyhow, if I'm honest. I don't remember yeah. much about last month. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's hard for me to remember who, who we were on with. Yeah, it must have been just such a fun time. And obviously around then, um, you'd be touring and um, I know you would have done your own headline shows, but did you do any support slots with any sort of bigger artists? I know some, some people do stadium gigs with other artists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the one that comes to mind is In Excess in 1992. We did a few uh, stadia um, in Europe with with them, and then we played Wembley Stadium with them. Um, Who else? Let's have a think. Uh, um, The Wonder Stuff. I know in in our early days we supported them, and that that was a real privilege. um, That was incredibly exciting because... A year or two before, we'd been watching them on stage, thinking, "God, oh, what a brilliant band!" And then we were the support band. Um, but bigger bands, uh, again, you know, I, I, I just <laughs> find it really hard, hard to remember this stuff. I do remember the in excess things, but um, I know there will be others. But uh, yeah, it's yeah. I don't know. They'll come to me about twenty minutes after we finish. Yeah, I just remembered you, you played that because there was a, um, a documentary about Michael Hutchins the other day, and it mentions that gig. And I remember seeing your name on the bill. I mean, Deborah Harry might be on the bill as well. Hot yeah, she was. De- Debbie Harry, Jellyfish. Wow. Um, what a lineup. It was good. Is it 90, top of my head, so around 91, was it the um, best new band at the MTV Awards? You won that. Yeah, that's right. Which must yeah. have been, well, a huge, huge deal. I mean, it is a huge deal. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was a it was a strange thing in a strange year. Um, wow. You know, the, the, uh, right here, right now, was really taking off in America, and you know, we was we were still. I think we were still living in in tiny little apartments in in London. So, I, you know, kind of uh, pretty crappy places, the same places we've been living in three years before, um, and we were hanging out at the, at the MTV Awards um, and you know touring all around the US. So it was. It was very, it was very strange. It's quite a contrast in life, you know, to be doing all that stuff, then to go back to your crappy little flat in London afterwards. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, it was a real shock. Uh, I remember that we were, our record company came to the gig and said, um, uh, you, you're, you, you guys are invited to go to the MTV Awards and um, you should really go. 
Oh. <laughs> That's a lot really? of that, yeah. you know, lots of uh, verbal oh. underlining things, strong suggestions. Oh, I bet the, you must have just, the nerves you must have been feeling, all butterflies, you know, just... Uh, no, no, not really, because we just thought it was all a bit of a laugh. You know, we, we, we thought it was... Yeah, I mean, the, the, everything was going so well at that point. Um, it was all just good fun. Uh, it was going, I was going to say better than we expected, but that's not really true. You know, I'd always had high hopes for us and I'd always thought we should do well. Um, and so when it all happened, it, it just seemed like everything was on rails. Like that, that was exactly as it should be. So it wasn't really stressful or anxiety making. We just just went along and and enjoyed it and mucked around and made sure we had a good time. I know. So the same importance of around that time. Such such good music. There's so much different genres and different genre crossover, wasn't there? But all the bands seemed to be really fun and all about like you know just having a good time. And I wondered. I'm quite interested because it seems to me when I got into music it would have been. 1991 there's so many great bands up until when Britpop started which we kind of forget about we, I mean we don't forget about you because you're still here and people still love you and we go and see you um, but you know like there was bands like Census Things, Frank and the Waters like go on and on um, you know EMF and then Britpop comes along and we were like oh it's all about Oasis onwards but I was thinking well what, what, if you go back I mean there's so many documentaries about Britpop and books, but nothing about that. I suppose because it didn't really have a name, it wasn't a scene such. You didn't, you weren't called, if you get what I mean. So what, yeah, what, yeah. what about Britpop was, you know, at the time? Yeah, I, I, I really didn't like it because uh, it, um, in a number of ways, I kind of felt that we were, we were in a, an era of music um, where it was really progressing. Music was really jumping forward. And by that, I'm, I mean, I'd be going to kind of techno clubs in London and I'd be hearing week after week after week, um, sounds like I'd never heard before, you know, just really kind of eye-opening, astonishing music. But I was reading at the time that the most exciting thing in music was something that sounded like some of those records I talked about listening to that, that you know, belonged to my parents. I, I couldn't see the point of this massive leap back in, in, into the 60s when there was such a strong alternative. That, that was the thing. So, yeah, yeah. And the other thing as well, as I mentioned before, about how it's really important to when you when you try and emulate your heroes is to get it wrong. Um, and how you get it wrong is the exciting thing. You know, John Lennon's Buddy Holly impersonation is pretty crap, but that's why he sounds like John Lennon. Um, to, to, and I felt that um, bands had got so good at emulating their heroes. It, it was kind of uh on the uh, it was kind of parody really it had got to that point all pastiche you know when there's there's one of the oasis songs that opens with a bit of piano and you think oh yeah that that's imagine <laughs> and you know that, that when it's that simple and it's that that obvious and there's no mystery to it it it's, doesn't excite me um but you know i think there are always always really good bands around. Um, you just sometimes have to lift up a few rocks uh, to find them. And I think you had to lift up quite a lot of rocks in those days, um, but it, it, it soon sorted out. You know, I mean, I just basically uh, started ignoring rock music that moment and also ignoring the, the rock press, which I felt it kind of let us down a lot. And I then got, you know, after techno, got very much into drum and bass and then into grime after that and dubstep after that. So. 
Um, I come back to, to bands a little bit more now, but it definitely, for me, uh, the mid nineties, I just completely ignored rock music. Yeah. Um, I didn't find anything that, that really excited me, anything that was really, um, or uh, that, that, that was unusual, that was exciting, that was progressive. You know, that there was no David Bowie in the 1970s, if you like, or there was no, I don't know, any, I couldn't hear any really progressive artists within that genre. Yeah, no, I, that's funny you should say that because I I went kind of a similar way as well. I think when Britpop was around, I was more listening to electronic music or more stuff mm. like Mass Attack or Portishead. Yeah. Because I want, like you said, I wanted I wanted something different, not something that sounded like you said an old band from the sixties. So that's an interesting point, actually. So when did you get into electronic music? When did when what was the sort of opening when you get into that? Uh, it it would be hip hop, really. It would yeah, be. Right. Um, uh, Run DMC, Beastie Boys, LL Cool J. So we're looking at kind of mid eighties, uh, mid to late eighties, uh, and then of course the thing that was um, absolutely pivotal was Acid House uh, because that, that that completely changed things, um, and it was the um, it was the the next thing that we've been waiting for ever since punk. Um, it felt very much the same, um, had the same kind of feeling. Because uh, I I, although I was young for punk, I, I, I still remember what it had been like uh, at the time, even though I, was, you know, I wasn't going to gigs, I was too young for that. Um, but yeah, uh, it, Acid House was the thing that, that, that really changed it all. It, it was, given that we'd been, you know, clubbing in London in the kind of 85, 86, 87, and it would, you know, you just, you go to clubs and you knew that you were always going to hear um, Sex Machine by James Brown. But, you know, and it was, it was really dull. And then a year later, you know, you're, you're kind of in this club that's so full of dry ice, you've got to find the toilets by walking your way, walking your hands down the wall. Um, it's just a single strobe and a load of dry ice. And again, this music, the like of which you've never heard before. Um, yeah, that was, it was a really, really exciting time. And, and at that point, I kind of thought, okay, I can't just be a guitarist in a rock band. I can't be just that because I'm ignoring the most important music of the time. Have you done any DJing yourself over the years? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, Ian still DJs, uh, but yeah. he and I used to go out together. I used to do lots of solo stuff. I did lots of kind of techno and hard house DJing. When I kind of went off that, that type of music um, or you know, when drum and bass kind of took over in the mid 90s, I stopped just because um, you do that thing of kind of getting to know all the people and networking and knowing people within a scene. And I didn't fancy going through all that all over again. Uh, and besides which, it, that was quite a, a difficult point in, in the career of the band. And I kind of needed to, to try and um, bail out the, uh, the, the band there if I could. Yeah. I mean, I bet you've got so many good stories. Have you ever, ever thought about writing a book or is it not something that's ever crossed your mind or just having the time? Uh, yeah, no, I, I did write a book um, called uh, called Death Threats from an Eight-Year-Old in the Seychelles. Um, I wrote the book about how, how it all goes wrong, how it goes downhill, because um, everyone does the rags to riches story. And I, I wanted to do the, the opposite um, because... The, it would be so often people would say, you know, why aren't you guys on top of the pops anymore? Why, why aren't you guys kind of doing all this stuff? You know, yeah. as if we had just decided we couldn't be bothered with it. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, you get all sorts of things working against you 
Um, and suddenly you're not able to have that platform that you took for granted two or three years ago. I mean, as, as an example, the it was a crucial point for us with our, our, um, our fourth album. Yeah, our, our fourth album. Um, on on the in the week of its release in the US, and we'd always you know had a lot of success in the US. We were just about to release that fourth album that had taken us forever to record, uh, and EMI North America just collapsed. Like the people who worked for the company woke up in the morning, turned the telly on, and found they were out of a job. But you know when you get something like that happen, we there we are. We're all geared up. We're ready to go, and suddenly boom, it's all taken away. So when you have Americans say, "Why did you guys, you guys just just stop?" You know, it's like, well, <laughs> it's yeah, not as simple course. as you think. It's not for not for one to try. Sorry, I, I wasn't aware of the book. Is it is it out there or what? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, many books called "Death Threats from an Eight Year Old in the Seychelles." It is available anywhere that we could. It is. Out. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, like I say, search it and, and you'll you'll most certainly find it. Go back to sort of this year. So are you busy now rehearse? I know you've got some shows coming up later in the year. Is that right? I know you've got one with the Utah Saints. Is that correct in London? Yes. Yeah. Uh, they're kind of spread over. Um, like I said, we do things in dribs and drabs these days rather, rather than kind of full on tours as we used to. Um, but as I said, we, uh, we're in Canada in May, I think just for, for a one off. And then there are festivals kind of left, right and centre and center all over all over the summer. And then I think the last stuff we have lined up is around about that Utah Saints uh, gig, kind of September-ish. But, you know, there, there are the other ones just seem to, to pop up. <laughs> it's kind of we're in a nice phase yeah. now. We never really know exactly what's happening in six months time. Yeah. I mean, the Utah Saints, you, you guys must go back. Well, yeah, a while now then. Yeah, well, Ian was actually a member of the band for a while. Um, he, he kind of played with them in, in one of our kind of uh, quiet periods. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and no, I love Utah. Oh, I, I still love them, but I loved them then, yeah. Again, another thing, like yourselves, because I was just looking for something different when you guys came yeah. along in Utah. It was like, yes, because I loved guitars, but I liked that song. Right. And it was just like, uh, yeah. yeah, I was sold. So that's excellent. So um, in terms of... of our new music. Is there anything on the horizon? Are you working on anything that you could tell no, us not about? At the moment. Moment? Not, not, not in a focused way, no. Okay. Um, uh, I, I kind of, I gather ideas as I used to and I, and I kind of um, knock something up every so often, but uh, the, the, we, we made an album, what was it, I guess four years ago now, um, and I'd spent quite a while doing on that. It's, uh, it's, um, Making an album, I think, is now such an old-fashioned kind of idea anyway. And it's a huge amount of effort. I mean, it, 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 to, to write it and record it, um, especially now that, you know, you, you, you tend to do it more yourself. You do as much of it as you can because it's, it's cheaper that way, um, which brings me back to the, the point I was, I was working up to, which you put all this effort in and you will make no money whatsoever. Uh, off that album, you know, because of the way it's all about streaming now. There, there are other ways, obviously, to, to make money, but I, I will never see back uh, the money that, if you like, I spend recording an album. Um, and I find it quite hard to, just to get to kind of focus on doing one or two songs to release every so often, you know. Yeah. Um, it's it's more kind of, um, it's just a headspace thing, really. They're, they, they're, I know that for me, there comes a time when I think, right, now I'm inspired. Now the stuff I really want to do. I'm not, feel, not feeling especially inspired at the moment, so I'm not just going to make 
some fairly mediocre music that I'm not very interested in just because I kind of feel I should. I'd rather wait until I think, yeah, I cannot but make this music. Yeah, that's a really honest answer. And like I see, uh, the good thing is you've got this great body of work that you can go up. Because I know touring now is a big thing of where people seem to make their money. It's good that you've got, you know, so many good songs that you could put out on a set list. So, you know, you've still got that. So that's um, that's great, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the difficulty for bands, though, of our or legacy bands, as I believe, you know, we, we've become is that um, there's that fine balance between what the audience want to, want to hear, um, which is often songs you can be absolutely sick to death of. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know we would we would always kind of like to play new songs or maybe some of the obscure ones and uh, and that's really kind of taking the mickey out of your audience that's that's not why they're there always makes me think of um going to see acdc you know kind of 20 years ago say and you you'd, you'd arrive 10 minutes late because then they've played the new songs that you're interested in, and you just get to hear all the ones that you yeah. do like um but you know i think although i make it sound like we we, we can't stand playing the songs you play that's not true um I think there are some songs that it's very hard for us to rehearse because you know, you're just thinking, oh man, you know, there, are, there are a couple that we've been playing since the mid eighties, I think. And those are hard to go through again, especially since you know they're, they're just two and a half minute pop songs, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle, chorus, end. Um, but when you play it live, it's different. They always they 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 change. You know, you, they, there's there's something about them that is shaped by forces other than the band themselves. Um, so it becomes it becomes far more palatable for us. But then there are those songs. I mean, glad thank God, um, like right here, right now, um, that are always a joy to play. Yeah. I always love that. Or, or a lot of songs from the third album. You know, songs from all of the albums. I mean, Move Mountains, the opening song of our first album. I still love that song. I still love to play it at home, um, let alone in front of an audience. So, yeah, we are we are lucky. You you're right that we we have kind of a body of songs, some of which we still like. No, I was going to ask you which out of your sort of um, more sort of what we call hits um, that you enjoy playing. And yeah, so is it right here, right now? I mean, that is a classic. I mean. I can imagine any yeah, yeah I've, I've always I've always liked that and from the moments in fact in the middle of writing it I knew I I, I was I, it felt to me like I was doing something good like something I was I was gonna be pleased with yeah um uh, of the hits what else uh who where why is always a great song to play live it's a, I think it's a much better song live than people realize from hearing uh, a record um, real, real, real. Yeah, I can, I can get through that. Um, Info Freako is still brilliant um, for, for us to play. We still love playing that. Great song. Never enough and bring it on down. Yeah, bring it on down. We've we've toyed with it a lot. We've we've messed around with it. We had a really exciting period uh, not that long ago where we, in the middle, we just broke it all down to its acid house beginnings. So we ended up in the middle of the song with just this out and out bit of acid house. Oh. And that was great for us to do, to do that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Never Enough is something, you know, that's one of the songs. I really had that one in mind when I was talking about songs we struggle with. I think I wrote that in something like 86, 87. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it wasn't that great then. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> although, yeah, I quite like the, the guitar in the middle of it is always is still to this, you know, 40 years later, whatever, is still still quite tricky to play. So, yeah, you know, there's uh, and there are there are songs later on as well that, the Devil You Know off Perverse, we don't often play. Um, and that's that's good fun to play. I like that one a lot. Um, yeah. 
So there's there are very few that, that there there are none where we do the Brian Eno thing of being on stage thinking about your laundry. Yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine with the sort of songs you play. So have you seen like technology over the years? Must as it made things easier when playing stuff live? You know, with advances of technology and new software. So has that helped when bringing the sound? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ian and I were talking about this the other day. I mean, it's what's happened is it's all shrunk. We used to have this flight case that was, I don't know, five feet high, three feet wow. deep, uh, three feet wide. It weighed, I would guess, something like 40, 50 kilos. And we'd have to drag that all around the world. And then there would be three full-size keyboards as well. <laughs> and that's all inside a laptop now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's the striking thing. But, yeah, wow. just I think the, um, the way that you can manipulate sound now and, and, you know, this has been the, the case for, I don't know, 10, 20 years, means that really there, there is no, there's no end to it anymore. You can, you can just make astonishing sounds and original sounds endlessly, which was, that was something I, I thought was becoming a possibility when we started, yeah. that you could create new sounds. But it's really, it, it's kind of... um it's a bell curve really in a way in that it started out and it was hard to do and you got a little bit better a little bit better and it's more and more exciting and then the, the top of the bell curve it's become it became so easy that now we're coming down the other side it's so easy to make new sounds that it's not really a big thing and it's not really very exciting anymore because everyone can do it yeah well just that um it's been a really fascinating feature today and i can't wait to see see some new tours from you and maybe the odd EP if you decide to put one out eventually or whatever so really thanks for spending some time with me Mike it's been really great thank you no it's a real pleasure nice to speak to you